Amen. You, I was impressed that uh, a, a high school graduate made it to the 8 o'clock service, one of them. So thank you all. We're so proud of these young people. What a blessing to have uh, you guys as a part of our church. What a blessing to invest in you in some small way. And uh, thank you for, for being here this morning. It's great to see all of you. We welcome those who are online and those who are with us in the chapel. We just thank you for worshiping with us today. Um, turn to your Bibles to Exodus chapter 13. We only have six chapters in Exodus and a half a chapter in Romans to cover this morning. <clears throat> That's just a little bit of Jewish history and a lot of Roman theology. Other than that, we're just going to zip right through here, okay? Exodus chapter 13. While you're turning there, um, I want to show you a picture of a family uh, that is joining us on staff as of June the 18th. And they moved here this past Tuesday. Um, they drove into town, closed on their house, showed up at the house and, and moved in. And uh, Jonathan, Sandy, Carrie, Susanna, and Laney, and he, you have something very special that the other two services did not have. I think we have the object lesson, real life in person here. Would you guys just stand up? Let's welcome Pastor Jonathan and Sandy. All the way from Lake Charles, Louisiana. And you know what I saw? A guy in our church is in Blacksburg today having a crawfish boil. So that guy will be right back. He's going to check it out. They are, they are, I encouraged him to take a couple weeks off when they got here, and it was the best advice I ever gave anybody. He told me last night, he said, I'm putting my drawers in my drawers. <laughs> he didn't tell me I could say that. I'm just glad he found his drawers before church this morning, amen? <laughs> and uh, we're glad to have Jonathan and Sandy and the precious daughters with us. Um, we're looking forward to them. They're going to be leading our family life and be over all of our student ministry and family ministries here at East Lake, and we're looking forward to a brand new uh, future for uh, college, high school, middle school, elementary, nursery, and, and parents, marriage. We're going to be taking this to another level over the next uh, few years starting this summer, and they're going to be leading in that, and you're going you're to just be delighted to get to know them uh, and their family. We are talking about the journey. We're all on a journey, Amen. We're not Christians who get saved and then just plunk, uh, check our ticket in the, in the box, stick it in our wallet and forget about it. We, we, we leave with Jesus to go somewhere. And all of our Christian life is for His purpose and for His glory. It is illustrated in this rough-hewn graphic that I put together a few weeks ago. Uh, again, it's not perfect in its depiction, but it helps us understand at least that we were in sin. It's the place where we all begin. And uh, we looked at that in Romans chapter 1 through Romans chapter 3. Last Sunday, we took a look at that moment when we get right with God. Paul uses the word justification ten times in Romans 3, 4, and 5, and it means to Settle up, get right, come together. We get, we're, we're out of sorts. And we have to, God has to justify us somehow and maintain his integrity in the process. Paul talks about that in Romans 3, 4, and 5. God sent his son 
who became a propitiation for us. That is, he, put, he was put in our place for righteousness and he was put in our place for sin and God poured out his wrath upon his son which kept God's justice intact and, God, and, and Christ gave us his righteousness and then God justified us and received us and, and now we are righteous in Christ and, and, and God's justice and his wrath has been poured out in Christ and we are justified with Christ. Everybody that puts their faith in Jesus is right with God. I hope you're right with God this morning. And then that's it. You just hang out and wait till Jesus shows up and he's going to yank us all out of this awful sinful world. No, no, that's not it. Our journey, our journey with Jesus is illustrated in the story of the children of Israel who were slaves in Egyptian bondage for 430 years. They were delivered out of Egyptian bondage God said, I'm going to take you to the place that I promised to Abraham, which was Canaan, which is modern-day Palestine, where they are now. It's the holy land where they are now. And he said, I'm going to take you there. But the distance between Egypt and Canaan was the desert. And it was the journey, listen to me, it was the journey through the desert that both perplexed them and prepared them For the place that God wanted to take them. We're all on a journey this morning. And the journey is not just heaven. That's where we're going. Ultimately it's all. Eden lost is going to be Eden restored someday. And we're all going to heaven. By the grace of God. All who have faith in Christ. But God has a plan for us in this life. And listen. Here's ultimately the place where God wants to take you. He wants to take you to a place where you can be spiritually mature, spiritually fruitful, and spiritually effective in your walk with Him. And maturity has nothing to do with time. It has to do with influence and impact and obedience and righteousness in our life. So, I want to... I wanna, I started in Romans 8 this week, earlier in the week. I was going to do Romans 8, 18 through 30... And then the more I studied it and the more I began to think, I need to back up and go back to the children of Israel. So what we're going to do is we're going to go to the children of Israel this morning and see three realities of the Christian journey from their, from their experience. And then we're going to land on the runway of Romans 8. All right? And, and I promise it was five minutes or less in other two services, okay? We should be out of here by 2.15 or 2.30 at the latest. You guys are brave because you come to the service where I don't have another one butted up against you. So I actually could go on, but I know you would leave. So last week we looked at salvation. We become justified. That is the children of Israel's exodus out of Egypt sort of depicted in the Red Sea. And they got out of Egypt. They went across the Red Sea and for the first time in 430 years they were free. And something happened to them that really perplexed them. They went into a place of trial, testing, and difficulty that they did not anticipate. It it reads in Exodus 13. Let's read it beginning in verse 17. And we're just going to reference some of the other passages that are there. Verse uh, chapters 13 through 18. Verse 17 says of Exodus 13. We're talking about the children of Israel. When Pharaoh... Let the people go after the ten plagues. 
God, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, which was the shortcut. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. Listen, but God led. Everybody say, God led. The people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him for 400 years prior. Joseph said, hey, by the way, when you all leave here, take me with you. (laughs) Moses took his bones and, and they moved from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. That's called a GPS, God's positioning system. It was an epic time in the life of the history of the children of Israel. And I want to notice quickly three realities of the Christian journey that they experienced that are mirrored, I believe, in our experience. Let me give them to you quickly. The first one is this. Their deliverance was a time of joy and celebration. This was, up to this point, the most glorious moment in their history. For 430 years, as I've already mentioned, they had been enslaved in Egypt God had told Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 that that I'm going to give you more children than you can number and your descendants are going to bless the entire world. At the time of the Exodus, they numbered somewhere around 2 million people. Several hundred years after Abraham, the children of Israel had multiplied to more than 2 million people. They had been enslaved, and God had done the miracle through Moses, and God had done the miracle of getting them out of Egypt, and now they are, for the first time in their life, free. They experienced three things in this this joyous occasion, and that is they experienced supernatural guidance. God beginning to speak with Moses' mother, saying, put the boy in a basket, Then God said to Moses' mother, give the boy to Pharaoh's daughter. And God had his hand upon Moses in the palace. And then God sent Moses into the wilderness for 40 years. And then 40 years in the wilderness, God showed up and spoke supernaturally to Moses. And he said, Moses, I want you to go back to Pharaoh. And Moses said, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know how I'm going to do. God said, I will equip you. And God God was, it was supernatural guidance that led Moses' mother. It was supernatural guidance that led Moses into the wilderness. It was supernatural guidance that spoke from the burning bush. It was supernatural guidance that took Moses back to Pharaoh's house. It was supernatural guidance that when Moses spoke, God worked. Ten plagues, you know the story. Every plague confronted an Egyptian god, and God squelched it. He squelched it. He squelched Egyptian gods one after another. Finally, Pharaoh said, I've had enough. And Moses and the people, after the Passover, you know the story. All two million of them begin to exit out of the, out of the nation of Egypt. And they get outside the, the country boundaries. They get outside the, and they go, does anybody have a map? How many of you are glad today that God doesn't just give maps 
He gives guides. God didn't give them a map. He gave them a guide. He gave them a pillar of fire at night. And he gave them a cloud by day. And I'm glad to know this morning that every person that's ever been born again is given a map. Right here's the map, folks. Amen. But God doesn't just give us a map. He gives us a guide. The Holy Spirit is your pillar of fire and your cloud by day. They receive supernatural guidance. They experience supernatural deliverance in Exodus chapter 14. We're not going to read it, but if you read Ex- if you want to read about the Red Sea, it's Exodus 14. They get to the point in their journey where they seem to be trapped. Mountains on both sides, the Red Sea in front of the Egyptian army deciding to change their mind and chasing them. So they've got this, they, they have this entrapment with the children of Israel. They have the water, the mountains, and the enemy. They did not know that this was going to be one of the most glorious moments in their history. And you know the story, God parted the Red Sea. And the children of Israel went across the Red Sea. And they got on the other side. And the Egyptian army raced into the Red Sea to chase after them. And God supernaturally closed it up. And God destroyed the enemy in that moment. How many of you know that when God, for Christ's sake, forgave you of your sins, He he rescued you out of the clutches of Satan's hands. And, and, And the scripture says that Christ destroyed death and hell in the grave. He squashed them in the Red Sea. And we're out. We're going to heaven. Praise God. We've been delivered. The Egyptian army can't get us anymore. Paul said it this way, who can separate us from the love of God? Amen? Amen. Satan has no claim on our life. He's a liar. He's a thief. He's an accuser. But by the grace of God, when you've been set free, God has done something big in your life. Somebody say amen. Amen. And that led them to this experience of supernatural joy in Exodus 15. Didn't I go fast through Exodus 14? Can you believe that? They get to Exodus 15. They land on the east side of the Red Sea. They realize they've been delivered and now they're absolutely free. Exodus 15 is a depiction of what it looks like when a people realize that God has had supernatural mercy on them and has rescued them from something awful. Actually, I think Exodus 15 is a little bit like East Lake 20 minutes ago, except on steroids. I want you to imagine this with me this morning. In Exodus 15, you find two million people. The last one comes running across the Red Sea. The the enemies of Egypt have been swallowed up. And they have truly been supernaturally delivered. And they break out into a spontaneous worship service. They are writing their own music on the fly. They're writing songs of worship and prayer. And two million people are worshiping the Lord, full-throated, sincere hearts, all in, saying, praise be to God who swallows the horses in the water. It's kind of an interesting song, but that was basically what it said. They began to rejoice. I will sing to the Lord The horse and his rider he has thrown in the sea. 
You want to know something? If you've ever felt the pain of sin and the grip of sin on your soul, when you know by grace and by faith that Christ has set you free, you too will rejoice. And I got news for you. If you claim to be a Christian and you have no joy and you don't know what that means, you might not be on the east side. You might still be on the west side. Amen. In the 90s, when I pastored in the inner city of Dayton, there was a lot of gangsters, and they say, east side, west side. Well, let me tell you, folks, we're east side. All right? We're east side. We are through the, if you are, listen, this is a, this is a problem with Christianity. There's a lot of Christians don't have any joy because truly and honestly, they go to church, but they have never been set free from the chains and the bonds of sin slavery. And if that's you, I got good news for you. It's not just a head knowledge. It is a heart knowledge that God can transform you from the inside out. I got to get to my sermon. (laughs) Moses and Miriam, it says the... Uh, all the women went out after Miriam with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam same. they liked that phrase. Sing to the Lord, he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider he has thrown in the sea. They liked that verse. They began to shout for joy. This is a picture of a person who has put their faith in Christ and received salvation. If you've been saved, you are supernaturally delivered from the bondage and the future penalty of sin. You have been redeemed by God. You have supernatural guidance in the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. You have supernatural deliverance from sin through Christ. And now you should experience supernatural joy in knowing that you're a child of God. But something interesting happened when they got on the east side of the, of the Red Sea and they were worshiping and they were celebrating. And I don't know how long it went on, but it went on for a while. And then people started getting tired and the music started fading down. And they all sort of started catching their breath and say, hallelujah, we're free. Where are we? Is this Canaan? Moses, is this the promised land? And Moses said, welcome to the desert. The desert, Moses said, let's go. And they started going. And they learned something. That although their redemption was complete, they were just beginning to grasp the reality that they were not home yet. Canaan was not contiguous with Egypt. There was a desert between the two. God had brought them out of bondage, but he had not yet brought them into the land of promise. Let me say something here this morning. You were not made to live in the desert. But God has handcrafted a desert to take you through. To prepare you for what he has made you for. So I wasn't made for the desert, but God has made a desert for me. And God has made a desert for you. It said in Exodus 13, 17, the Lord led them by the way of the wilderness. No one enters the abundant life, Stan Key says, without first passing through the desert. In nearly all of the giants of faith, that you read about have gone through a desert experience. Moses spent 40 years in the desert preparing to be a leader. David spent roughly 10 years hiding in caves in desert places. John the Baptist spent his entire ministry in the wilderness. Elijah learned his greatest lesson in the desert. 
Paul was converted and went into the desert for three years. Jesus himself, before he started his earthly ministry, went into the desert. They learned in this lesson that their deliverance was a place to celebrate And now they were about to learn that the desert was a place where they would learn to walk with God. The desert is a place where you learn to walk with God. You see, in Egypt, when they were in Egypt, it it was not nice. It was not wonderful. It was painful. It was slavery. It was bondage. But it was safe. And it was secure. And it was predictable. This was their life for 400. I mean, we were eating at 7 and at 12 and at 5. It might have only been a half a bowl of beans, but we were at least eating at 7 and 12 and 5. And now we don't even have a half a bowl of beans. They're going to look, God is going to teach them something. And what he is teaching them that is walking by faith and living for God is much better than the predictable, safe, secure surroundings of living by the flesh. And this is the lesson God is teaching them. They were not made for the desert, but God had crafted for, for them and every believer a place where they would learn more deeply what it means to know and trust the Lord. It was where they would learn about their own selfishness, their own need to rely upon God every step of the journey. Look at the map that, 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 uh, they, they, that shows the journey they took. The green is the way of the Philistines. That's the way you would go if you were trying to save gas. They went the red route. How many ever been on the red route walking with the Lord? The, the green is, where, is the way you would go. It's the quick way. Something like 11-day journey. It took them 40 years to take the red route. They made a few laps in the desert. But not all of that was according to God's plan. But the fact that God wanted to take them to the desert was to teach them some powerful lessons. It is in this place that we learn the difficult lessons under divine tutelage. All of this preparing us for the promised land of fruitfulness and effectiveness. The children of Israel, when they got to the desert, after they got done with their worship service on the east side of the Red Sea, the children of Israel immediately faced They immediately ran into five difficult experiences. Stan Key puts these in a chart, and I want to just show those to you, and they'll show them to you online as well. These are the five experiences that that they instantly encountered. If you read the story in Exodus 14, they go through the Red Sea, and then Exodus 15, it's about Mara. I mean, it's worship. It's the worship experience, and then it goes to the bitter place of Mara. They need water. We need water, Moses. They find some water. It's bitter. He puts a, miraculously, God turns the water sweet and wonderful, and they, they're able to drink it. They get done with that, and they go, now we're hungry, Moses. God says, Moses says, Lord, the people are hungry. How many of you know that walking by faith is a little risky here? We would never send a group of young people on a, on a field trip without gasoline and a plan for lunch, would we? They took two million people into the Sinai Peninsula, which was dry, barren. Nothing would grow there. There were scorpions, snakes, and enemies. And Moses is like, Lord, we got to have some food. And God provides manna, miraculous, miraculous manna. They get done, and they go, we're thirsty again. It's literally, it's just, it's chronological right there. 14, 15, 16, 17. We're thirsty. Lord, they're thirsty again. 
Okay, we're going to get water out of this rock. They get, done, they get done drinking water from the rock. Isn't God good? And then all of a sudden, oh, no, here comes an enemy. We didn't know there were bad people in the desert, and here comes an enemy. They're going to fight them. Well, you know what they're doing? They're learning. They're learning what it means to walk with God. And I got news for you. When you went, listen to me, when you get saved, it's a joyous celebration. And then God is going to ensure that you walk a path that will either, you will either learn to fully trust and rely upon God and become a man and woman of faith and obedience to the Lord, or you will grumble and complain and wrestle and do laps in the desert, laps in the desert, laps in the desert. There were three powerful lessons they had to learn in the desert. The first one was that the battle was no longer the Egyptians fighting them from without, but now it was their longing for Egypt from within. Just as soon as they encountered these major problems, they had a water issue in chapter 15 and verse 24, they began to complain against Moses. In chapter 16, verses 2 and 3, they took their grumbling to another level. And this is what they said in chapter 16, verses 2 and 3. They said, hey, Moses, why did you even bring us out here? We would have been better off in Egypt, eating the leeks and onions of Egypt. You see, they realized God was showing them something. Listen, God was saying, listen, now you're out of Egypt. The enemy's been destroyed. Now i got to get Egypt out of you. The problem was not that they were hungry. The problem was what they were hungry for. We don't have time this morning, but if you study the whole idea of manna and what manna was made up of and what manna was like, manna was cleansing their palate so they would have an appetite for what was in Canaan. I got news for you. There's a lot of Christians, and I think it's quiet enough. There might even be a few in this room or online or in the chapel. There are a lot of Christians who have a lot of hunger in their heart for Egypt. And the battle for the Christian when you get saved is not so much that the devil's going to attack you and take you to hell. That's not the battle anymore. The battle is that the battle now is not an external battle. The battle is an internal battle of self and the flesh and carnality. Somebody say amen. And this is the lesson of the desert. They had five issues, and just about every one of them, they began to hanker for Egypt. They began to wonder why they had ever left. God gave them manna. They were only satisfied for a moment, and they wanted something else. In chapter 17, verses 2 and 3, they are again questioning, why would you bring us out here, Moses, and help make us suffer like this? What we soon discover after we begin walking with God is that the battle is no longer with the enemies of Egypt. It is the battle of my heart and my flesh and will I surrender to all that God has for me. Nothing breaks the heart of a pastor any more than to celebrate in a worship experience on the east side of the Red Sea with someone who has come to faith in Christ only to watch them stumble and grumble and complain, move into a place of difficulty, and they start stumbling and grumbling and complaining and longing for what used to be. I got good news for you, and I got a word from the Lord for you this morning. There is nothing in Egypt that can satisfy your soul. We are on the east side of the Red Sea and the only thing now that can satisfy your heart and your life is to be in the place where God is giving you everything He longs and desires to give you. 
But there's some people, there's a lot of Christians that need to have their appetite changed. They need to have their appetite changed. They realized that the problem wasn't so much the Egyptians attacking them. It was internal. The second lesson they learned was that walking by faith is a radical new way of living. They had been used to being slaves. Being a slave was a low level of existence. But at least it was predictable. God was now taking them to a level of trust. And although it sounds amazing to say, we're walking by faith. We're walking with God, isn't this? That sound, doesn't that sound spiritual? Doesn't that sound spiritual? If I say to you in Kroger, how are you doing? You say, well, I'm just walking by faith. Well, that sounds spiritual. That almost breaks into a song, doesn't it? They, they, under, they had to learn something. That walking by faith, walking by faith is, is a radical new way of existence. It's trusting God for everything. It's acknowledging God in every circumstance. It's waiting upon God for the plans, for his plans to be revealed to me about my life and my future and my family and my children and my grandchildren. It's waiting upon, this is walking by faith. As I mentioned a moment ago, they wandered into the desert without plans for food or water. At times, walking by faith seems foolish It is wearisome, and it can be dangerous, but this is the lesson for those who will make it to the promised land. Listen, our prayer is that God will raise up a mighty army of children and young people and moms and dads and grandparents who know what it means to be men and women walking in obedience and in faith to God himself. We got enough flesh. We got enough sight-filled Christians that just do things that we predict we have, we have all the labels of Christianity. But let me tell you something. If we're going to go to where God wants us to go, we've got to be willing to walk in full obedience and surrender and do what he asks us to do. This is the lesson of the desert. They literally did not know where they were going to get something to drink tomorrow. But I got news for you. If God led you there, God will provide for you there. Where God guides, God always provides and they had to learn thirdly that in order to succeed they had to work together in chapter 18 Jethro Moses father-in-law gives Moses some incredible advice he says in order for this journey to be successful you're going to have to train and mobilize people to work together for the good of the whole God always longs to us first to be connected to him but then he wants to teach us how to work with others The desert is a place where we learn to get along with other believers and work successfully with them. The problem with many Christians is that we don't get along with others and we can't work well with others because we haven't settled some of the issues ourselves with God. We're not ourselves in full surrender and in full submission to the will of God. Therefore, we're always at odds with someone else. I'm sorry, next week I'll bring my happy Dr. Seuss sermon, okay? I felt like I needed to say that. You guys were sinking on me there for a moment. No, I'm serious. I'm serious. This this was one of the five challenges they faced coming out the gate. How do we get along with others? How are we going to work this out? Jethro said to Moses, Moses, you got three responsibilities. You got to stand before the Lord on behalf of the people. That's prayer. 
Moses, you got to speak the statutes of the Lord to the people. That's preaching the word. And Moses, you got to raise up leaders, some over 50, 100. He said, break it into groups. you got to raise up leaders. And that's the three responsibilities of every leader in the church. Pray, preach the word, and raise up leaders. Amen? And it, uh, just, just by way of a free announcement, Acts chapter 6, when the early church was just starting and they were at this same place, Acts chapter 6, they hit a little wall and they said, we got to, Peter said, we're going to choose seven men among you to be men of faith, wisdom, and the Holy Spirit. That's leadership development. And Peter said, we're going to give ourselves to prayer and ministry of the word. The exact same three priorities that Jethro gave to Moses in Exodus 18, the church embraced in Acts chapter 6. We got to learn how to get along with one another. And finally this morning, the runway part, five minutes, I promise. They had learned about their deliverance was a joyous occasion. They had learned that the desert was a place where you learn to walk with God. And they learned their destination was spiritual maturity. It was really the journey for them was really all about God working in them so they would be prepared to face the giants that they would encounter when they got to the Canaan land. God is a gracious teacher I have discovered in my own life. He's not a teacher that says, you flunked the test on Friday, you're finished. God is so gracious, he says, Troy, you flunked the test on Friday, I'd like for you to take it next Friday. And Troy, you flunked that test again, so I'm going to let you take it next Friday. And God is such a gracious teacher that he will let us do laps in the desert for 38 years if necessary until we learn the lesson that we need to learn so that we can possess the land that he has promised to us. Amen. And some of the challenges sometimes in our life are just us retaking the test because we refuse to pass the exam. And God would rather his children lap in the desert until they are spiritually mature and ready to go Now listen, there was temptation in Canaan. I'm not trying to say it's a finished place where you don't have temptation, you don't ever sin, you don't ever have a battle because there were, there were enemies in, in the promised land, there were battles in the promised land, all of that. But I'm talking about just being in a place that flows with milk and honey, a fruitful, effective place with Jesus. Amen? <clears throat> this is where I want to go to Romans. I want, I want to read this scripture. Every bold and underlined word, just say it out loud when we come to it, would you? And then we'll close. Paul says, this is sort of the, a Christian gospel application of this in our life today. He's also referring to heaven in this passage, I understand. But the last three verses do talk about what I'm talking about this morning. Verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. That is heaven. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. This is the condition of our, we, we live in a broken, sinful, fallen world. Every person in this room has, has been affected by the curse of sin and death. And Paul's saying the creation 
is under this groaning. And what do we do with all this stuff that's in our life? Verse 23, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. Christians groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Our bodies have been affected. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches his heart knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. He's depicting the Christian life. These are the battles. These are the struggles. Listen to what he said in verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things, the groanings, the weakness, the sufferings, the brokenness, the battles, the trials, all things in our life work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Verse 29 gives us, verse 29 is the promised land. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. That is the Canaan land. The Conform to the image of Jesus is the goal of God in all of our life. He wants my attitudes and my behaviors and my actions and my prayer life and my interaction. He wants my relationship to reflect Jesus Christ. That's the promised land. The promised land is not a place where I have no problems or I have no battles or I have no temptations. No, the promised land is where my life, I am formed into the image of Christ and I am reflecting him and I am fruitful and effective in the work of the Lord. This is the promised land. This is your destiny. And verse 30 is sort of the whole journey in summary. And those whom he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Stan Key says it like this in closing. The desert is a place of learning. Here God humbles us, disciplines us, tests us to know what is really in our hearts. We will never be prepared to face the giants that are camping in the land of promise until we learn the lessons God has prepared for us in the desert. Though these desert experiences might be frightening and even painful, we're in a good place. God is equipping us and growing us to maturity so that we can be ready to fight the battles that await when we reach the land of promise. When you find yourself, listen, when you find yourself in a desert place, don't immediately assume that you took a wrong turn or that God is somehow punishing you. It is in His great love and faithfulness that God has brought you to this desert spot and He wants to give you the greatest education that grace can provide. He wants us to learn that salvation is about more than getting us out of Egypt. It's also about getting Egypt out of us. And this is the work of God. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? Everybody that says, Lord, I want to go to the promised land, just raise your hand. I want to be in the promised land. Just hold it there as we pray. Jesus, Lord, I confess this morning that I have done more laps in the desert than I wish to acknowledge. And I want to live and dwell in the land of fruitfulness and effectiveness and maturity. I ask your forgiveness and your cleansing, Lord, in the areas where I have failed to learn or failed to trust or failed to obey. 
And I pray right now, Lord, that you would guide us. Lord, I'm praying that you would, you would give us a sense, a, a divine sense of, of, of urgency in our own heart and the heart of these men and women to say, I got I to gotta go where God wants me to go in my walk with him. Lord, help us not to stay stagnant. Oh, Lord, cleanse our heart for hungering for Egypt. Cleanse our heart for hungering for the things of this world that take us away from following you and doing your will. Lord, we need need you today. We trust you. We depend upon you. Lord, I pray for every person here that's holding their hand in just sort of simple faith saying, I want to be all that you want me to be, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would guide them. Pour into their hearts today your grace and your spirit, we pray. I pray, oh God, that you would mold us and shape us and make us like you want us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Would you stand and sing this chorus, Change My Heart, Oh God. Change my heart, oh God. For